Open Globe Talk is a podcast series for aspiring ophthalmologists and trainees interested in obtaining education in global ophthalmology. Be part of this unique setup as we interview ophthalmologists around the globe virtually and get to create equity in service, innovation, and medical education. Welcome back to another episode of Open Globe Talk. This is your host, Rizal Nathani, and I'm joined today by Dr. Christos Ifantides, who is the Director of Ophthalmic Global Outreach and Assistant Professor of Ophthalmology at the University of Colorado. Dr. Ifantides obtained his MD and MBA from the University of Florida College of Medicine and subsequently did his ophthalmology residency training at ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. He then did his fellowship training at Thomas Jefferson University, Will's Eye Institute in Academic Global Ophthalmology and Interior Segment. It's my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Epentides in the show, and thank you for his time today. Well, it's great to be here, and thanks so much for the uh, invitation. Thank you. Um, so like I start with every guest, I wanted to ask you, you know, what drew you into ophthalmology? And, you know, I, I know that you come from a Greek background, so it's interesting to see how unique your reasons would be. That's a great question. Um, you're right. I am Greek and I have a very difficult last name. Ephantides, uh, you were um, getting it right. So uh, I initially was excited about ophthalmology because of a crossover from research that I was having in vascular biology. I was doing vascular surgery research. And I got uh, introduced to retinal biology research um, in by, by a colleague who was working in the same lab. And then it sort of uh, just attracted me based on the surgeries that I saw being done um, in an ophthalmology operating room, the quality of life impact, and really the ability to help folks in multiple ways. So non-surgically, the eye is a sentinel organ. It allows us to see um, other disease processes, diabetes, hypertension, inflammation. And so that really got me excited about being able to do many collaborative things with other people in our field of medicine. Uh, but really uh, the, the linchpin here was just the improvement of quality of life that we can give to our patients on a massive scale. So contrary to some surgeries that might take eight or nine hours to do, it felt very impactful to be able to do a relatively quick surgery and have such a big improvement in somebody's quality of life. And so that really drew me to ophthalmology, uh, the ability to help as many people as possible. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm just fortunate to have given, been given a chance. I noticed that before medical school, uh, you did AmeriCorps, and I was just curious for our medical student listeners or pre-medicine um, students, uh, how, how would you say, you know, you should spend the gap year? And now that's become more popular, right? Um, how do you spend those gap years trying to really prepare yourself for this step ahead? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. For me, I knew that I wanted to give back um, as fast as possible. And medicine is not always, uh, you know, I guess the best suited for that. Most of our medical school training, we are learning, absorbing, really even through residency and fellowship, we have to reconcile with the fact that it's mostly about us uh, learning 
and less about uh, helping others. We obviously can do stuff, volunteering and whatnot, but really the, the ability to help in medicine is once you become a specialist in something. And so for me, finding ways to help throughout high school, undergraduate, and then before med school was important. I knew that uh, one of the only reasons I was where I was uh, at that point is because of people who invested time in me and acted as mentors and kept me on a straight path when I strayed a bit as a young man. And so for me, it was important to give back. And that was a way I thought I could give back effectively at that age with that skill set. And so I was a reading teacher for a year. I helped mentor young elementary school students, many of which who didn't have a uh, strong mentor in their life. And so I felt like I could provide that. I had the skill set to do that. And I thought it was a great opportunity. It also taught me about what living in a certain condition would be like. I made under $9,000 for the year. And so I certainly was well below the poverty line. Learning about what that's like is really eye-opening, highlighted how few opportunities some folks in our country might have, uh, even though we are a very wealthy nation overall. Uh, we have problems in our backyard every single day. And so it, it really opened my eyes to that. I would encourage anybody to just not feel like they have to get done with something. The saying of the journey is sort of uh, the, the important part of things is really true for personal development. And so, you know, as a person who's looking at applications as well, I can tell you that folks who try and seek out unique life experiences and don't just try and quote, get done with it are more attractive uh, as an applicant for me. And that might not be for everybody. I'm speaking just personally here, not on behalf of my institution or anything, but just to have people with those life experiences, I think is attractive. Whether you need some time for yourself or you want some time to give back, I think that really shows maturity, um, dedication, um, and not just uh, you know rushing to get to one place that we really know nothing about, right? So we don't know what it's like to be a full-fledged doctor in undergrad. So just making sure you're building, uh, you're using your skill set that you have so far and seeking out opportunities to help and to grow, I think is important. So don't rush into anything. Excellent advice. My next question is, you know, you are a global ophthalmologist and you constantly are surrounded by thinking out of the box type of situations. What are some ways that you find yourself using technology in your local and international communities in a creative way to solve issues that may be something that you haven't seen before? Well, I think the general philosophy is doing more with less. I think it's really easy to do a lot with a lot, <laughs> but can you do the same amount with less? That's the really creative way. And so working in different international settings, I think we need to bring that, import that into the United States more. Uh, there's a lot of stuff we do that's totally arbitrary, not evidence-based, uh, is built through and uh, sort of there because of economic benefit rather than evidence-based medicine, the amount of disposable things we use per surgery in the United States uh, is an issue, the amount of waste generated by cases is an issue, and the amount of instrumentation that we feel like we need is an issue. So personally, I think it's easy to do eye surgery with everything that's out there. How do we figure out ways of doing just as good work with less? That means we drop the cost of delivering healthcare. 
which means we can help more people. And so to me, that's one of the things that I learned early on is just how many fantastic ophthalmologists around the world are able to do just as well or better than we can here with less. And so in terms of specific technologies uh, that I've imported into the United States, the manual small incision cataract surgery, we do pretty much on a weekly basis at the hospital I'm at. Our residents get to learn that procedure and it uses far less instrumentation disposables than uh, traditional fake emulsification surgery. It's way less costly. And so for anybody thinking about what um, one of the pillars of global ophthalmology or global health in general is, how do we improve healthcare delivery by decreasing the cost, by you know streamlining the different products we use? And so I'm always thinking about that in our operating room. How do we decrease the number of diversity products we use, right? It should be, how do we all come to agreement on what's important to us and make sure that we streamline that process so that we're not spending more than we need to. Yeah, this is really cool, actually, because your program is one of the few programs in the United States teaching M6. And I'm curious to know, you know, often when a person completes their fellowship, they can incorporate their special, you know, techniques into a private practice setting. But I've never really learned um, or have heard of people bringing the skill sets that are unique from their fellowship and abroad into an academic setting. So how were you able to incorporate, you know, something like this into a big institute like University of Colorado? Well, it wasn't easy. And I think you have to change some people's mind. Um, you know, the the joke is that you can fake o anything if you try hard enough. It doesn't mean it's the right thing to do, but if there's no other option, then that is your only option, right? So I think when I got here, uh, one step was convincing uh, folks in the community that a non-FACO procedure could have better outcomes than a FACO procedure. I think people think FACO is the end-all be-all. And since arriving over four years, it's changing a culture to think, wow, that maybe this patient might do better with uh, a sutureless extra cap procedure where the cornea can be crystal clear on day one. You know, we did one on Monday and the patient was 20-20 the next day. And that is unheard of with phacoing a type of cataract that, you know, is ideal for a extra cap instead. So mature cataract. So I think time, if you have that skill set, time and a lot of education about the technique itself, the, you know, Ellie Prasad, I know Dr. Rao came on the show. Uh, they've done a fantastic study on equivalency between uh, FACO and M6 in terms of outcomes clinically. Uh, the difference is that M6 is about 20% of the cost of FACO. Other people have shown equivalence for, for outcomes clinically. And I think in the United States, it could be better outcomes because you're not having to FACO those. So changing the perception through education, making sure that people know that clinical outcomes infection rates, that sort of thing are the same or better if you're trying to prevent a corneal transplant uh, for the patient down the road from uh, pseudophagic bullous keratopathy. So, you know, I think education is one and then patient population is another, patient selection. So it's not like we're selecting everybody for these randomly. It's people who are coming in who are impaired visually, pretty severely usually, you know, count fingers from their cataract, older folks who just haven't gotten care. 
Uh, unfortunately, we have plenty of that here in Denver, but it's all over the United States. You just have to become a referral base for that so that people know that there's somebody in the community who can do it. And uh, we've started referring people from all over hospital systems to the hospital I'm at, and we get to do it with the residents. Uh, but starting that culture, letting people know that it's an option for them. And usually you don't cause any headaches when you're telling people that you want to take on the hard stuff. <laughs> um, usually you're, you're creating solutions um, and freeing up their practices. So for us, we encourage people to send their very difficult cataracts our way and happy to take care of them. But it takes work trying to create that referral base. Definitely seems like something that would be really helpful for a lot of private practice individuals who may not have the skill, but have a doctor nearby who could do it. Um, so you're right. And there must be more demand throughout the United States. And I wish there were more, um, more and more individuals growing uh, who have the skill now that you're teaching them. My next question is, you know, you obviously do research and um, you have a day devoted to that or a couple of days devoted in, in, the, in the month. What are some things that uh, you're currently studying in global ophthalmology or outside of global ophthalmology that you're really excited to share and talk about? Well, I think the research time or you know, paper writing, whatever it is, your, we'll call it scholarly pursuits, um, are really important. If that's something that's important to you during residency or fellowship uh, to continue doing, you really need to figure out when you'll be able to do that in your life. And so seeking out opportunities that give you that time are important, especially early on, because if you don't have that time, then you're committing your nights and weekends to it, uh, which is fine. But I feel like you could be more productive if you have some business hours to do it because you do need to collaborate. Collaboration is the number one thing for an academic, maybe not working in academics, but even in private practice, we have a very academic private practice community too. So just knowing that you can collaborate with different individuals is really important because you spread the work out for publications, for progress. So I would say I recommend making sure that if that's a passion of yours, to make sure you have time carved out to do that which means it could be a sacrifice in other places, whether it's clinical busyness or financial sacrifice. I think just weighing the different options is important. I love asking questions and looking for answers. It is a critical component of uh, my philosophy of helping as many people as possible because I'm just one person and I can only do so much with my own hands. Uh, teaching has allowed me to expand upon that, but even beyond that, research to me is a uh, way of finding a path forward for to help thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of people. And so some of the things that I like to focus on that both affect people of all socioeconomic statuses are large unmet needs like dry eye disease. Evaporative dry eye disease is one thing we're working on. It is a pathological process that can lead to pterygia, that can lead to a slew of other things that we see internationally. Um, we just got approved for some NIH funding for looking at mask wear in vulnerable populations. And so that's one thing that we're looking for in terms of global health. Other things that I specifically am looking at are things that add to surgical complications. When I was doing part of my fellowship in Ethiopia, it seemed like in some towns, close to 100% of our surgical population had pseudoxfoliation. Uh, that led to a pupil of two to three millimeters. And I've it's an area where some of the most skilled surgeons in the world can flawlessly do 
a sutureless extra cap through a three millimeter pupil. That's pretty incredible, I think. And so, but you know, it got me thinking, how do we improve? Not everybody is that good. How do we improve surgical outcomes for folks who don't have great dilation? And so another big push for me is to figure out how to improve cataract surgery safety. In terms of epidemiology at Denver Health, uh, we are looking at a few things that are global health related, languages spoken. We have 114 languages spoken here at Denver Health. About a third of our patients don't speak English on any given day. And so doing different uh, research pursuits such as quality of care delivery based on languages spoken is one thing we're looking at. Um, some colleagues of ours, uh, we're looking on the clinic side, some colleagues are looking at the OR side. So our complication rates higher in patients who don't speak English in the OR. And so thinking about these um, social determinants, how they impact care delivery are important to us. Um, another thing we're doing is building a trauma database for eyes. Uh, there's only a couple that exist in the United States. And so we are looking at some interesting data uh, from um, these databases showing things like alcohol use is much higher in eye trauma compared to other bodily trauma. Uh, and then finally, uh, we're starting to do some research on white cataracts. We have a large percentage of our practices is compared to other people's practice are white cataracts. And so how do we provide information to our community about the safest way of tackling these cataracts, different surgical techniques, clinical outcomes, how to improve outcomes uh, for, for things that are routinely more complex in nature. Yeah, I noticed uh, you have an interest in zeptocapsulotomy system for the white cataract. So, you know, it's, it's interesting how technology evolves and accommodates for these common and serious uh, ailments. And ophthalmology is always ahead in terms of that. Moving forward to your focus on international health, um, I know that you just recently went to Mexico for your international trip. And I was kind of curious how it felt after so many months of not being able to do global health per in person and finally having that opportunity to, you know, serve the underserved on more a broad scale. Sure. So it was great to get back into the field after about a year and a half or two. I think uh, June of 2019 was the last time I uh, ended up having some time to go abroad right before COVID. But I, you know, we work in different places, Sierra Leone, specifically the Dominican Republic uh, are the two main focuses. And the common thread of many places around the world is the fact that there are bright people everywhere. Um, there are people who are just as intelligent, just as hardworking as we are. The only difference is that the educational opportunities are different. And so working with a talented ophthalmologist at Ophthalmo University. He was one of the co-founders of this virtual teaching platform and in-person academic center for virtual teaching. Ivo Ferreira Rios is uh, down there. We've talked a, a bunch and finally had the opportunity to go and see his setup there. He's got a full surgical suite uh, both cataract, refractive, retina surgery, and so as well as simulators. And so the idea that we're working on now is the common thread that there are bright people everywhere. We have to reach them with educational opportunities and big picture futuristic style stuff like how do we conduct an, a completely virtual residency program outside of the clinic, outside of the OR. I think people will say now that that's impossible, that you always need to have that interaction with patients. 
Uh, and I would challenge that to say uh, our technology is not to a point where we can recreate uh, the type of feeling that one gets interacting with patients on a in-person level right now, but the technology will be there in the future. Similar to how acting has evolved, um, you know, we look at 1920s movies and um, we're not going to get emotional over a Charlie Chaplin movie usually. And But today's quality of acting is so high that would we call ourselves ridiculous to get emotional to a drama that we see today? Um, if we were to laugh or cry, it's because it's so real that we emotionally feel that, right? So um, the same thing can be done with virtual teaching eventually. We just have to get to that point of computing power where the fidelity of the situation in three dimensions is such that we feel like we're in the zone. We've seen other fields be able to accomplish this. Ophthalmology is should be at the forefront of this. You know, we have uh, the ability to look through oculars and have something presented to us virtually. We should be able to recreate this uh, scenario of high fidelity operating room. How do we master, how does a trainee master a tr an operating room experience or a clinical experience? Uh, what does that look like? Could we do it in 200 years, a thousand years? When is that? And then how do we work backwards to figure out what technology is needed to reach that point? And then working with industry to get there. So those are, those are big ideas I think that we'll get to uh, sooner than we think based on computing power advancements. But that was what I was working on with, with Evo down there, who's about as energetic and passionate about this uh, as you can get. So um, I'm excited just being around him. Uh, we share a lot of common threads of uh, teaching, and I think the future is bright. But our, our plan is to scale education for ophthalmology trainees around the world. That's really cool. Um, and as we were discussing earlier, you know, the art of medicine was practiced, you know, initially through apprenticeship. And it seems like we may be going into a virtual apprenticeship form in the near future, especially in areas where we don't have teachers as many as we would like so that uh, we can meet the needs of the population. And as a global ophthalmologist, do you find a difference in your philosophy between someone of your training background and someone who may not have had that in the ways that they believe um, they can introduce different cultural practices of practicing medicine? Well, uh, to touch on the educational access first, I think that we are in a position to not just improve training for medical necessity, but from K through 12 education, you talked about virtual mentors, virtual teachers, we will f eventually get there where every child in America, every child in every continent has the same access to education. That is a goal that we should try and reach because there are very many wasted opportunities for talent that goes uh, undiscovered, unutilized around the world. So to think even bigger, these are policies that can be enacted that can help reach every corner of America and beyond. Uh, in terms of sort of, I think you're getting at like a formalized training. For me, I think it was imperative uh, to have structure of an educational experience over the course of a year, similar to other subspecialties. Global ophthalmology, we are making a push that it is its own subspecialty. It comes with its, with its own surgical skills, many of which most people would argue is harder than your routine cataract surgery. If you ask trainees what's harder, FACO or M6, M6 is 
far more difficult to learn and master, but is imperative for a global ophthalmologist. But beyond that, infectious diseases that are prevalent outside of our own communities. So understanding epidemiology is important. Understanding economics, politics, advocacy, those are all things that go beyond, I'm going to get some donations and go do some surgery. Understanding from a public health perspective, what the implications of free FACO does to community. Those are things that I think I would have never learned had I not really gotten immersed in these different experiences. So for me, I think that a formal curriculum is imperative for a global ophthalmologist if you really want to be called a global ophthalmologist. For me, uh, it is from surgical skills to epidemiology to clinical care, understanding the treatment patterns. Um, you could spend years doing it and not master it. And so uh, I think it's critical for anybody interested in that to really pursue a formal educational experience in it to per, to push our field forward because you know we have a long way to go. Blindness is actually increasing, uh, prevalence is decreasing, but because the population is increasing, the total amount of blind or or visually impaired are increasing, and so we need to do something differently to scale up our efforts. The best way of doing that is if you really want to help. I think doing a uh, an extended period of time abroad, learning different systems. And yes, our way is superior in some ways, but going back to the idea that you can get just as good outcomes clinically, that's the, the, the thing that matters the most is clinical outcomes. The second most important thing is how financially sound your model is. And so if you can get similar outcomes for $50 than you can for $100, who's the best, right? Like I would, I would argue that Americans are not the best because if other people can get the same clinical outcomes for half the cost, the argument is quite simple. So I think we certainly are one of the leaders in innovation, but there's a lot to learn from our colleagues in different countries. Absolutely. And it was really nicely put of how the different areas of practicing ophthalmology can be improved with the knowledge of global ophthalmology and just the justification of why a fellowship even exists in the first place is really important. And I'm really glad that these fellowships have been expanding. Speaking of which, you are the director of global ophthalmology and University of Colorado didn't um, have a program such as this. I was kind of curious, uh, you know, as a fellow coming in with all of this knowledge and training, how was it like to adapt to a new position uh, of this level and expanding on thoughts on what should be included in an institutional education for residents? Well, you know, it is part of our plan to eventually have a fellowship too, but I think that before we do that, you brought up a great point. What, what are the requirements for that sort of fellowship? And I'll like to point out that our fellowships in ophthalmology are traditionally not ACGME accredited, whether it's cornea or anterior segment or retina or uveitis. These are fellowships that developed by people who decided to focus on one part of ophthalmology and then call themselves specialists in that piece of ophthalmology and then design curricula that were focused on that piece of ophthalmology. And that's how a retina fellowship started. That's how a uveitis fellowship started. There will be more fellowships in the future from the subspecialties that we find. 
But that is one piece of the puzzle to think about how the evolution of other subspecialties in ophthalmology happened. And then looking at the diverse educational opportunities that a cornea fellowship might have from one institution to the next can be completely different. It could be, quote, cornea heavy, where you do very little cataract surgery and a lot of transplants or ocular surface disease, or it could be opposite and you're, fi you're focusing on refractive cornea surgery and refractive cataract surgery, and yet they're still called cornea fellowships. And so similarly with global ophthalmology, a lot of us, Jeff Petty, Jacqueline O'Banion, who you mentioned, those folks who have fellowships and others, uh, we've discussed what a curriculum might look like. And at the end of the day, there are multiple avenues that can and should be offered, whether it's surgically heavy all in one country or surgically heavy in, in many countries or not surgically heavy and epidemiology heavy, tailored to a certain type of applicant that might be wanting to do epidemiology research above surgical operations. And so there are some pillars that we've discussed as a group that we think are necessary, and that includes the sutureless extra cap, the manual small incision cataract surgery as one of the pillars for surgical training. There are other surgeries that, that I think fit in the toolbox for a global ophthalmologist, but beyond that, focusing on what the educational experience should be too. What do we do in clinic in the United States that can be mirrored globally. There are certainly conditions where we see all the time glaucoma, uh, retinopathy, cataracts, but what are the local conditions that we need to focus on? Things that we don't see as much here, but we see abroad, infectious diseases, that sort of thing. And so again, a lot depends on where the Global Ophthalmology Fellowship travels to and goes to and what the interests are. I know the Emory program has a fantastic opportunity to get an MPH as well during the program. Uh, and so there are certainly pillars that we all try and follow in terms of our training. I, I was at Wills and there was certainly educational goals, but there's also leeway to adapt to what the interests of the program are, the needs are of both the program and the fellow, just like there are for cornea fellowships that are focusing on corneal transplants versus refractive cornea procedures. And um, one of the things that you innovated on, and I hope in the future, if you do happen to open a fellowship, is the rotary chop method, which I was kind of curious, how did you think about uh, drilling a hole and using the chopper to, to be embedded in there and crack the dense cataract? Well, thanks for watching that. <laughs> um, I, so it started by fakoing a very hard cataract. And I do a vertical chop technique. And this likely was going to be a uh, conversion to an extra cap if uh, I wasn't able to chop the cataract in a couple of pieces. But after my first failed attempt to chop it, you know, with vertical chop, you burrow into the lens with your FACO tip, and then you attempt to put your chopper inside the lens and then bring the two instruments together. I pushed the cataract off of the FACO needle, broke occlusion that necessitated me going somewhere else to try to chop again. So I rotated the lens a bit, about 90 degrees, and I realized at that moment that, well, if I rotate it 180 degrees across from me, then there's a hole in the lens that I can try and use to put my chopper in. Because the problem with vertical chop of a very hard nucleus is that you can break occlusion if you can't get your chopper into the lens effectively. 
So knowing that there's a hole there, I thought, well, maybe I can just put the chopper in there because I won't have to push down the lens with enough force to actually get it into the nucleus and then bring the instruments together. So lo and behold, put the chopper in there and it cracked all the way through the posterior plate for a very mature cataract. And I was happy as a clam because I was thinking, holy cow, is this something that people can do often uh, on purpose, right? I sort of did it as a failed attempt at, at my normal vertical chop technique. And so as I kept doing it, I realized that not only is this a way to help with hard cataracts, but it's a way to improve safety for folks who don't know how to do SICS, the sutureless extra cap surgery. So from a safety standpoint, I'm hoping that cataract surgeons who are FACO only can see that and say, I'm going to do that rather than use a high CDE with divide and conquer, a normal chop technique and fail, break the zonules, have high complication rate. And I've been really fortunate to see folks from all over the world uh, send me videos of them trying it over the last few years from when we presented in the Dominican Republic in 2018 all the way through today. We've got tons of, photo, of uh, videos and photos of folks doing it. Uh, it's just super exciting to see because we know the safety is improving of FACO and just as exciting, we decided to try using it as a teaching tool for residents because with a hole there where they can put the chopper in, it prevents them needing to go out into the periphery underneath the capsule for a horizontal chop where trainees don't feel comfortable going. And vertical chop as a trainee, you tend to push the cataract off the FACO quite a bit initially. And so this is sort of like a training wheels method for, for chopping. And we've had great success with teaching fellows, residents all over the world how to do a chop technique. It lets them then transition to horizontal or vertical chop. Yeah, it was really cool. You know, you, you've created this community of people where sharing our innovations is something that at the pandemic level was uniting and kind of bridged the methods from abroad into the Western methods as well. So it's kind of like a hybrid where we get to appreciate the innovations occurring on both ends. So my last question is, I've heard a lot of residents and trainees kind of say, you know, they're burned out and they want to look forward to really helping people and their uh, communities. And one of the ways that they find themselves is global ophthalmology. And I just wanted to ask you, you know, some parting thoughts of how life has been post global ophthalmology and how you've kind of uh, developed a mantra for finding your inspiration in ophthalmology. Well, you know, it's, it's really challenging for trainees to figure out what they want to do. And, you know, when we mentor folks, we like to highlight that early on in your career, you're typically doing what other people recommend. You are listening to your mentors, but also doing what's asked of you as a staff officer, you know, in a hospital, you have your clinical duties, you have your research duties in your residency program or in your medical school. So you're really getting, you're acting on recommendations. Just as important is figuring out what you like to do out of those requests. So it is okay, even if it's something that's positive, to say, I don't like to do this. I'm doing it now, but I don't want to do it in the future. What you don't want to get into, though, is I haven't found anything yet that I like doing. And so if you find yourself in a position where you don't enjoy to the fullest something that you're doing, 
the next time around you should try something different. Some people might fault you because it's, oh, this person's jumping around, they don't know what they're doing. Forget all that. They're not gonna be with you in 20 years. They're not going to be spending time with you outside of work. You need to focus on what your interests are, what your passions are, developing those passions. So for global ophthalmology, for instance, things that people can do, it's all about learning, putting tools in your toolbox. And the biggest thing that you can do is realize that you are not going to help by doing surgery. That's just the way it is. It takes a long time to get good at those surgeries. It's hard for people who've been in practice for 20 years to go and do surgery abroad. So certainly as a medical student, as a resident, as a fellow, it was a very difficult thing that all global ophthalmology fellows have to cope with is that we think we're going abroad to help uh, and we can, but not surgically really. The surgical part is us learning how to help people in the future. They're helping us, we're not helping them. What we can do is gain skills during residency, understanding how clinics work efficiently, understanding how to be better teachers, understanding what supply chain issues might be for things that we take for granted, like, oh, I want, I want something, I can order it here. Well, that's not the case in other countries. So thinking about, okay, well, my distributor here is either a third-party distributor or from the company directly. Maybe I should talk to them during residency to understand what a supply chain might be like, where the breakdown is, how pricing structures are uh, designed. Those are the things that you can learn as a resident or through books or through reading. Uh, I had the fortune of doing an MBA during my medical school, so I felt really confident in that arena, but those are the skill sets that you can help a clinic way beyond what you can do trying to help with a surgical campaign. And so I would challenge folks who are really passionate about global ophthalmology to find things that they can learn now in their own practice day to day and say, what are my costs associated with the procedure I'm about to do? What is this going to cost in my minor procedure room versus the OR? What are the costs associated with everything? And getting a good understanding of that is not just going to help you in your American practice or wherever you're practicing, but when you travel abroad to help others figure their process out. Great clinicians don't make good business decisions and good uh, business leaders, and good business leaders uh, definitely don't make good clinicians. Um, and so how do we do both well to help, right? You can help a lot more people if you can figure out how a clinic can see 20 more patients a week than if you were to go and do 20 surgeries in one year in one trip. So thinking about those efficiencies in your clinic and thinking about how those can be applied to efficiencies abroad are going to help you help other people the most. That's actually a really good response to, you know, things that I've been thinking of myself and how to innovate before I go into residency, because we may realize that as medical students, we don't have a lot of time, but when we get into residency, that's even more so the case. So doing something where we can be productive for the rest of the team is something that, um, you know, you've given ideas to our listeners and myself to do early on. So thank you so much, Dr. Ifantides. Uh, this has been an incredible podcast, and I really recommend all of our listeners to listen in on this one because it speaks to the training level very strongly. So thank you. Of course. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Open Globe Talk. If you enjoyed this podcast, follow us on Twitter at Open Globe Talk. You can access audio recordings 
on our website, openglobetk.com, where we make our sessions available on Spotify, Apple, and Google. Our release dates are each Friday evening of the week we interview our guest speakers. We are incredibly appreciative of our listeners and hope to ride along to meet more inspirational figures in global ophthalmology. Thanks and take care.